0: Welcome to Try, Try Again with Catherine Velez, a podcast dedicated to relationships, the one with yourself and others. In last week's episode, I talked about defining addiction, and this week I'd like to talk about addiction and attachment in relationship. I wanna preface this to say there are many reasons people use and many reasons people stay in relationship with addiction. The purpose of this podcast is not to direct you to stay or go or even to quit. It is simply to explore and provide information and food for thought, which we can follow up in our time together. If you are in relationship and addiction or use of any kind is constantly bubbling up, causing stress, or you find yourself avoiding or being secretive on any level, it is likely addiction is kind of a third party in your relationship. So let's look at addiction and attachment. As you may know, my earliest training is in attachment. And so the way I view relationship is first through the filter of that attachment. How you learned to self-soothe and self-regulate, how you learned to love and trust comes first through your initial primary attachments, relationships in this world. For most of us, that is our mother and father. And as I've outlined in prior podcasts, there are several different categories of attachment. And if you want more information on that, look at the September 2020 podcast on attachment and wounding or ask in our session together. As it relates to relationships, most of the couples I see where addiction is part of or contributes to the relational dysfunction is usually a combination of avoidant and anxiously attached partners Avoidantly attached and anxiously attached partners often find one another. It's a very common dynamic, and there are compelling reasons why they're attracted to one another. Claire and Richard had been married 15 years. They had dated about a year before marrying and had three children. As Claire talked about their first Years together, her face lightened and she smiled a lot. She said, Richard was so attractive to me. Not only was he handsome, but he was so confident and committed to the kinds of causes I felt strongly about. We would sit over a glass of wine or coffee and talk for hours. He was the best listener. I felt I could share everything with him. Her face darkened and her smile faded as she added, but something changed, and I felt the shift. He spent more time at work and golfing. He doesn't seem to be listening when I talk. He drinks more almost every night, and we fight about that. He can't help with the kids by the end of the evening. I think he drinks to avoid having to deal with anything happening at home. Nothing I do or say has any impact. I just feel he's checked out of this relationship. I feel alone and unloved and so angry and hurt. For Richard's part, he said, I don't know. The first few years, Claire was so easy to be with. She was funny and light and like I could be myself with no expectations. But over the last few years, especially and maybe it's with the kids, I feel like she is so demanding and anxious. Nothing is ever good enough. And the kids feel it, too. I'm working more because I want a better life for my family. And yes, I do play golf because it helps with business and it's relaxing. By the way, she drinks, too. I drink because it's the only thing that helps me relax at home and be able to deal with her craziness. Predictably, Claire reacts to that word, and in a manner that, for Richard, validates his belief. In this very brief scenario, which is not uncommon among couples, there are several things happening. Richard blames his drinking on Claire's anxiety and craziness. Claire feels her anxiety stems from his drinking and being checked out. Both feel the relationship is out of balance. They're not getting their needs met, and they don't know what to do. They both resort to drinking, to feel different. Typically, what I see is people start use as a way to numb anxiety, numb the pain of trauma, or they start using as a way to relax and feel better about self, almost always Use is about not wanting to feel how we feel without use. In this scenario, perhaps one or both are addicted, perhaps not. But certainly the emotional disconnection between the two of them and their relationship to intoxication has become problematic. There's no hard and fast, one-fits-all way to deal with addiction in your relationship. Most people in conventional wisdom would agree that effective, honest, and compassionate communication is essential for healthy, growth-oriented relationships. But when a relationship suffers with uncertainty, fear, unmet expectations, unhealthy imbalance, dependence, demands, and anger, communication in that relationship reflects this. And ultimately, what it really reflects is the disintegration of or lack of emotional connection. Distorted relationships are almost always found where there is misuse or dependency of a substance or behavior. Communication in a relationship with addiction requires many of the same components as any other kind of communication with anyone else. Honesty, consistency, compassion, without belittling or blaming or taking inventory of that person. When you can't express your feelings, including your anger at the addict, you either turn it on yourself or you turn it on others, very often kids or other relatives. One of the things I talk with couples about is communication, and we continue very often to come back to it again and again, and it is delivery. It's not even so much the message, but how is it delivered in terms of in terms of tone and attitude and nonverbal expression, the look on your face? There are many ways to approach the struggles in these kinds of relationship. But one of the first things I would encourage clients to look at is their attachment style. In this scenario that I presented, it's very clear that Claire is anxiously attached and Richard is avoidant. As they talk about their courtship and dating, Richard was able to open up about his childhood and learning that ultimately his feelings didn't matter. As a result, due to many factors, including personality, he learned to avoid confrontation and feelings and to use alcohol to help him avoid them. Claire, on the other hand, was raised in a family where she was held responsible for things because she was the oldest. There was a level of perfectionism required and Because she was human and not perfect, she carried with her the wound of not feeling good enough. In reality, they both did. It's important in this situation to look at, for instance, Richard being a good listener for those first few years. We examined that, and they were both able to see that what Claire had identified as good listening skills was actually Richard not participating fully in sharing of himself and expressing himself in the relationship. He had found in life it was much easier to sit and nod and ask occasional questions and smile rather than fully invest himself emotionally. He wasn't even sure he knew how to do it as we talked about it, and Claire felt the same. She felt the more she tried to hold on to Richard, the more it seemed to push him away, and she was right. The avoidant partner can seem emotionally unavailable, which, for the anxiously attached partner, causes more anxiety and more extreme behaviors in order to try and hold on to that partner, which only drives the avoidant partner further away. Typically, anxiously attached partners feel they're not good enough and they want their partner's approval. Typically, they will report their core values include stability and security. More avoidant partners are fearful of being controlled or smothered, and they typically report core values of autonomy Both of these attachment styles can have some overlap, and like all things having to do with us humans, there are exceptions. But it's a good basis to look at relationships and why needs are not getting met without thinking it has anything to do with love. Both Claire and Richard loved one another deeply. They just needed help in communicating that love, as well as making changes and adapting to how their partner experienced love. When addiction or intoxication becomes an added layer, an obstacle to communication and making change, the addict, in order to keep loved ones from interfering with their drinking or whatever their use is, will often create diversions by accusing their partner of something to cause that partner to defend themselves. Then the addiction gets ignored. Remember the saying, that which we defend against, we make real. There is very often emotional manipulation or hustling that happens because the dependent person or the addict is attempting to get their needs met and not in healthy or productive ways. This takes time away from the relationship. There's a dynamic with couples and addiction that occurs when the addicted spouse creates relational versions and there is always a problem or a reason for the using partner to be upset. Perhaps they find fault in the non-using partner. Usually, that looks like a lot of blame. And if the non-using partner is also an anxiously attached individual, this goes to the heart of their not feeling good enough, and they attempt, through maladaptive means, to be good enough. The singular purpose in this is to divert any attention or focus on the addiction. Distorted relationships and methods of communication are often found in relationships where addiction resides. And what often will happen is the non-using spouse will take the inventory of the using spouse. And what that means is, particularly in the AA model, it is important for a person to take their own inventory. That means admitting past mistakes and the knowledge and strength and weaknesses and what is their potential for change. When we do that for ourselves, it's impactful and powerful. When someone else does it for us, it's contemptuous and critical. Addiction is a symptom. Yes, it's its own emotional and brain health issue, but more than that, I see it as an indication of maladaptive coping skills, and in many cases, genetic predisposition, requiring nurture. It's as simple as that. Something is missing, and when we don't know how to fill that space in ourselves, we reach for things that seem to take the pain away. Numbness, make us feel better in the moment, give us a warm, relaxed feeling, because we don't know how to do that for ourselves. And for many people, it becomes habit. When I suggest taking that away and replacing it with something else, it's terrifying because at least this thing I use to fill myself, to nurture myself, to relax, to calm, at least this thing is familiar and it works so well. To give that up and to reform a belief system that allows you to think perhaps there's another way, particularly when your experience is that you've tried other things that didn't work. You may have to reach out to people who didn't respond. You may have been so traumatized and hurt and rejected that now you don't trust the other. As damaging as alcohol and use of any kind can be for our brains and bodies, there's a reason people are addicted. You can count on it every single time and it does what it promises to do. And can you say that about people? Can you say that about relationship? Addiction means I don't know how to do healthy relationship with myself or others. Claire and Richard, as many couples, found their way back to one another and actually report feeling closer than ever. It was not without a willingness to explore not only their relationship but themselves and one another. It also required love, which they had in abundance, but just were unable to access it fully without seeing things from a different perspective and learning some new communication skills. If any of this feels familiar to you, please bring it into our session together or find a therapist to work with who understands addiction and attachment. If you need referrals, please reach out to me and have a week filled with meaning and love.